On this edition of the Iowa Business Report. In the midst of a global pandemic, now is not the time to be slapping on tariffs. The new United States-Mexico-Canada agreement has not even been in effect for two months. And two of the trading partners are now engaged in another exchange of tariffs. The third part of our summer series of conversations with the folks from Advance Iowa is on today's program. And you'll learn about an Iowa business that has been the real thing for more than a century. This is the Iowa Business Report for the third weekend of August 2020. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. The Iowa Association of Business and Industry has been the voice of Iowa business since 1903. Learn more online at iowaabi.org. Here is Jeff Stein. Each month during this summer, we've brought you information about Advance Iowa, the state's comprehensive consulting program designed to work with mid-sized companies to enhance their growth. In our previous conversations with Advance Iowa Program Director and Lead Consultant Dan Benkin, we've talked about programs to help businesses start up, to maximize potential, and to be handed off to a new generation. But services like these do have some cost. Anything that we do with entrepreneurs that are just looking to start up is always free. We don't pass along fees to those that are just trying to get going. Uh, so a little bit of is a what, you know, what can the client bear, I guess, too. But that's under our Small Business Development Center umbrella that we do that work, Jeff. So. That's the first signal that you've become successful when you call your office and they say, you're, mm-hmm. you're going to have to start paying for this. Yeah, <laughs> you have to pay a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. What, what a great marker, right? Because here's somebody who's been fighting to get a business going, and now all of a sudden they've made it because they know that you no longer consider them just a startup. They've now progressed absolutely. into this other area. Yeah, you've made it now. Yeah, that's the... Uh, Pat on the back, right? The official seal of approval. Yeah. Let me ask you finally, what is it that people most often get wrong about starting or running a successful business? Often they see what somebody else is doing and they say, I'm going to do it cheaper. That, that'll that work for a while, but eventually you'll soon realize why they're charging what they're charging. There's some abnormalities there or something like, you know, a little bit of that. Just offering something a little cheaper than somebody else is not a winning strategy. So that that's a big one. Certainly not long-term. That may be yeah. a way to bring business in initially, but there's probably a reason why the other person was charging on a sustained basis right. what they were charging. Absolutely. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Another thing that I would say is that most entrepreneurs come into a business that they start because of a skill set that they have. So we call them technicians, for lack of a better word. And they, you know, they're technically savvy at whatever X is that their business does, uh, hair salon, plumbing, computer programming, whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Now, this is a broad stereotypical brush, of course, but, you know, there's, there's the assumption that I do it better than anybody and that will bring the crowd to my door type of thing. I'm the best chef in town, and why would people want to eat across town at this other place, right? And so that's why marketing people have jobs. It's self-evident to them, perhaps. Oh, clear as the nose on your face, yep. But 
they and and I've often said because I've I've seen it happen the individual who is the founder the person with the the brainstorm that leads to the whole thing happening they're wonderful at creating but they may be frankly lousy at running a business you know the inventor can't just automatically turn that into dollars the inventors on the creative side but you need somebody whether it's marketing or business to actually harness that because for one person to have all these diverse skill sets that's a very rare situation yeah that doesn't happen and we talk about that a lot too jeff so we talk about when the kids are going to take over for the parents you know we talk about so dad was or mom was the rainmaker they knew how to sell they could put ice cubes in the hands of Eskimos type of thing as we hear, right? Or whatever it might be. Who from the next generation is going to do that? And, you know, that might be self-evident or whatever. Uh, but there's usually somebody else who was COO, you know, managing the operations of the business, taking what somebody else was promising could be done and actually doing it and delivering on it. And that takes a completely different skill set. That takes detail orientation. It's usually a more introverted type person who is focused on the numbers, the getting it done type of thing. It's very rare that you find somebody who's who's really good at both. I don't know. Scientifically, it's possible. But um, <laughs> you absolutely have to have that additional assistance. And, and, and that's, I think, a lot of the companies that we work with, the owners – they don't know their their financial performance inside and out. They know if they made money last year and they know if they have money in their checking account right now type of thing. And the rest of the financials they have somebody for, right? And that kind of thing. And so we see that all the time. They're just, they're not good at both. So I completely agree with you, I guess, yeah. This has been a lot of fun because I find the, the backstory, if you will, of how these businesses actually work to be really fascinating mm-hmm. because you have so many wonderful examples and you have so many rather poor examples. And I'm sure you do this obviously where you hear X business failed, not that you're working with In and, general. And, and you can look at it and you can say, well, I can identify six reasons why this one failed and this one didn't just because of being able to analyze it and, and getting behind the curtain. And, and that's, that's fascinating to me. To some extent you can kind of triage some, some rationales as to why, you know, I certainly can't just sit here and say that so-and-so screwed these four things up and sure. that's why their business sure. failed. Or sure. I mean, serendipity plays such a huge role, too, as and network, luck, all those types of things go into it as well. And you can't account for that. So what you can do is be prepared and educated and and have a plan and, and hope serendipity comes along to help you out type of thing, yeah. Dan Benkin is the program director and lead consultant for Advance Iowa, headquartered on the UNI campus in Cedar Falls. For more information on the wide variety of services they offer statewide, go to AdvanceIowa.com. And to listen to the full conversation, go to TotallyIowa.com and click on the radio programs link. It's listed as an IBR Extra podcast. Still to come, tariffs are back, and things go better with a product produced by a multi-generation family-owned Iowa company. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report.
As Iowa reopens for business, take time to support the stores that drive our state's economy. I'm Nicole Crane of the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, inviting you to continue to safely patronize these businesses that provide jobs for your neighbors and revenue to grow our economy. It will take some work, but Iowans aren't shy about that. Learn more about Iowa's recovery at iowaabi.org. The Iowa Business Report is a copyrighted production of Totally Iowa Media, which is solely responsible for its content. For more, click on the radio programs button at totallyiowa.com. The replacement for the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, went into effect on July 1st. It's USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. But already there are problems leading the U.S. to place tariffs against Canadian aluminum and Canada to retaliate. Joe Murphy is executive director of the Iowa Business Council. He told me this past Monday the tariffs are a bad idea. We did think we had this in a really good spot earlier this summer with the president signing the USMCA trade agreement. The goods of services and uh, products moving beyond our borders into Canada and Mexico. And then just last week, we learned that the president has decided to slap a 10% tariff on uh, specifically aluminum in Canada. And that's really, really unfortunate. That we don't think is, is very good policy. And in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, now is not the time to be slapping on tariffs. I get the understanding as far as, you know, what they think that might do for um, trade relations. But, you know, consumers, individuals, uh, manufacturers, producers, those are the ones who end up paying that 10% cost. It's effectively a tax on business, a tax on individuals. And as we're trying to come out of this uh, recession uh, related to the pandemic, now is not the time to be raising costs on businesses or individuals, which we feel like this will do. Is it tied to something else? Because I know we have talked with our ag experts about how the new USMCA was going to cause some problems for dairy in this country because of provisions that were in USMCA, loopholes, if you will. So is this tied to something else to try to get to leverage some kind of response that helps in another area? That could always be a possibility, but as you know, you look at the information that's being put out there either by the administration or, or another individuals that we've been talking to, the, the situation seems to be completely tied to the aluminum issue. The administration thinks that there's been a surge in Canadian aluminum coming into this country, which will then cause prices in American manufacturers to decrease as a result of that influx of aluminum into the market. But, you know, honestly, as we look at the reports and other things like that, that's really not what's happening. And so we're all sort of scratching our heads right now, collectively as industry leaders, trying to determine, okay, what are we actually trying to solve here? And particular for Iowa, Canada is our number one trading partner. We have billions of dollars worth of goods being exported each year. And this certainly does not help Iowans who are already having you know, a difficult time getting back to work, manufacturing in a, in a much more uh, robust manner, and just trying to get back to the normal way of life. Joe Murphy of the Iowa Business Council, online at iowabusinesscouncil.org. Coming up, producing the pause that refreshes. You're listening to the Iowa Business Report.
The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry, helping develop the next generation of business leaders through Leadership Iowa and Leadership Iowa University. To learn more, go to iowaabi.org. For more than a century, the Atlantic Bottling Company has produced various beverages, most notably Coca-Cola. In this week's business profile, we'll introduce you to Kirk Tyler of Atlantic Bottling, who shares how the family company got started and how it has grown generation to generation. Well, Jeff, it's a lot of fun to share our story because uh, it starts 111 years ago, 1909, down in Villisca, Iowa. And my grandfather, Harry, and his brother, Henry, started our business, Tyler Brothers, and we were actually in the ice and the ice cream business. And we had our own line of soda flavors. We had about 18 different kinds of soda flavors, orange grape, strawberry, root beer, cream soda, ginger beer, ginger ale, all those kind of things. And then the ice cream business. And the ice cream business got to be so good. In 1912, they bought a creamery down in Clarenda, Iowa, which is just south of Villisca. And uh, they were going through the warehouse of the creamery and they found a safe and they opened up the safe and lo and behold, here's a franchise for Coca-Cola in the safe. And back in 1912, nobody really up in this part of the country knew what Coca-Cola was because it started in 1886 down in Atlanta. We started making some Coca-Cola and we actually had to make some. And then we'd put a couple bottles of Coke in with the case of orange or whatever other flavors they had, just to get people to try it. Then people would take the Coke out and say, no, I want my soda flavors. But it grew and grew, and pretty soon they were pretty good in the soft drink business. And uh, in the late 20s, they sold the ice cream business to Metal Gold at the time. They got half in cash and half in stock. And a good thing we got half in cash because in the late 20s, you know what happened in 1929? Everything went bust, and they actually got about half of what they thought they were going to get for the business. I love the part about these add-ons or throw-ins. Sometimes you make a business deal, and you just don't know what gets thrown in. A Coca-Cola recipe gets thrown in, and that becomes your (laughs) primary business. That's right. So they progressed in the soft drink business for quite some time. And fast forward to the late 40s, at the time, the family had... Plants in Atlantic, Creston, Shenandoah, and Grand Island, Nebraska. And an estate planner came to my grandfather and his brother and said, this business is getting too big for one family. You need to divide it up. And fortunately, all four plants were valued about the same amount. Fortunately for us, my grandfather and his brother got along very well. So they literally drew straws to see who would get which two plants. And Our side of the family drew the long straws and we got Atlantic and Creston. So we operated those two plants for quite a number of years. Fast forward to the uh, mid seventies, my father and and my grandfather got a call from the Coca-Cola company, a man by the name of Don Keogh, who was president of the company at the time, called him up and he's originally from Sioux City area. So they knew Mr. Keogh and he called him and said, say, we'd like you to consider purchasing the Des Moines Coke franchise. 
which at the time in the mid 70s was one of the two worst coke plants in the country as Des Moines and Buffalo, New York. Des Moines had had a series of about 12 owners in about 15 years and everybody took money out of the business, didn't put anything back. So it was really run down and we were tired of having people come to Des Moines from Atlantic and come back to Atlantic and say, geez, we tried to find a Coke and couldn't find one. And so very fortunate for me, one of the requirements for them buying the Des Moines franchise was one of them was going to have to move to Des Moines. And they were both small town guys. And they said, well, if that's part of the deal, we're not interested in it. But we know somebody who would be interested in living in Des Moines in a few years. And that was me. So I was very fortunate that they took the opportunity to buy the Des Moines franchise because probably if they hadn't taken that chance back then, we probably wouldn't be a business because we would have been so small. We just wouldn't have been able to operate with the scale. So we operated in the Des Moines franchise, built it up. At the time we bought it, we were getting outsold by our primary competitor about eight or nine to one. Today we get outsold, uh, just depends on what part of town, but Overall, uh, they sell three, we sell two. So we've made a lot of progress there, built it up. We had heard a rumor that maybe they were going to refranchise some of the territories. So in April of 14, my father and I took a trip down to Atlanta and met with a few folks and told them we didn't know what the process or the protocol was. We didn't know if it was true, but if it was true, we wanted to be part of the system of the future. We wanted a little more territory. And at the end of the meeting, they said, you fellas might think a little bit bigger. And so uh, August of 2015, they came back to us and said, here's the territory that we would like you to consider. And it was most of the state of Iowa, excluding far western Iowa. And then we had a little bit of Wisconsin, a little bit of Minnesota, a little bit of Illinois, and a little bit of Missouri. And we were, wow, we don't know if we want to take that on, but we talked about it and our family talked about it quite a bit. And really, we decided, you know, if we can make a difference in those territories, we should do this. And uh, it was fortunate that my father and grandfather took the chance on the Des Moines franchise. And if we don't take the chance on this franchise, uh, is it fair to the next generation? But we'll give you the parameters, but you're going to run it like yourselves. And of course, I'm sure you've talked to other people and, and some people really embrace that and some people are scared to death of it. But uh, we had some great people that said, I'm going to show you what we can do. And uh, it's been a great ride since then. Now, you're third generation, right? I am. And you've already talked about setting things up for the next generation. Talk, Correct. if you will, about how it worked, because it was a family operation with brothers. Right. And then it became right. your grandfather and your father, and then you're brought in. How have you handled the transitions? Because mixing business and family sometimes can lead to well, <laughs> rather quiet Thanksgiving dinners in the future. So how have you been able yeah. to make it work? I'm probably the luckiest guy alive, Jeff, because I'll go back to when my grandfather was starting his estate planning and my father had a sister. My father was in the war, came back from World War II, started working in the business. And my grandfather said, OK, I just want you to know that if something happens to me, I'm going to split the company 50-50. And my father looked at him and says, well, you know, it's your money. It's your company. You can do whatever you want with it. But if that's the way it's going to be, I'm going to go look for another job. Said so my grandfather, well, you can't do that. And he goes, well, why are you going to do that? He says, well, somebody's got to be in control. So they set it up to where he was going to get 51% of the company and his sister, the 49. 
And so he always remembered that. And so when it came time, I was very fortunate where they made me president of the company when I was 35 years old and gave me some support and everything. But I had a father that was very uh, considerate, uh, very thoughtful on, okay, I've been running the business for day to day and everything. I don't want to do that anymore. You do that. And I'll just meddle when I can in the policy issues. I was fortunate to have a lot of good people that I worked with and grew up with, and we ran the business together. But if there was any any issues or whatever, I could go to him, and there's not too many things that he hasn't seen before. To have people that uh, are in a family situation and have the, the young people say, well, now it's my turn. I'm going to run it like I want to. I just don't understand because why they don't lean on their parents' words of advice is beyond me. But I took a full advantage of that. And we went by the motto, and I'm sure you've heard it before, what's equal is not fair and what's fair is not equal. And so we went by that. And again, I've been very fortunate to have my father still alive, that he's been able to say, okay, here's what I would like to see happen. Well, that's tremendous guiding influence because obviously it's worked pretty well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're starting to get it down after 111 years. Kirk Tyler is president of Atlantic Coca-Cola Bottling Company. We spoke via Zoom on July 30th of this year. More information is at AtlanticBottling.com. There's much more to the story, including how the Tyler brothers helped a loyal employee's family make its fortune in their native country. More specifics about handling multi-generational succession issues and how the ever-competitive beverage industry keeps changing. You'll find the full conversation as an IBR Business Profile podcast. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can listen to all or part of today's program by going to totallyiowa.com and clicking on the radio programs link. You'll also find podcasts of full interviews with many of the folks you hear on this program, They're listed as IBR Extras and IBR Business Profiles, and were also found on all the major podcast distributors, including iHeart, Apple, and Google. We welcome your comments. Send them by email to radio at totallyiowa.com. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a prosperous week. The Iowa Business Report is presented with support from the Iowa Association of Business and Industry. Follow ABI on Twitter at IowaABI and online at iowaabi.org.